0: When I work on my own thing, it's inseparable from my life. That is my life. But the word career, for some reason, for me, is associated with working for somebody.
1: For me, it's associated with like levels and promotions, which is all a framework laid out by somebody.
0: Somebody smart to make it work for them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, at some point, we'll have to lay out this as well if we are successful.
1: But we'll be the smart ones laying it out.
0: Hello and welcome to the Metacast Podcast, episode 24, part two. In part one, Arnab and I talked about our decisions to leave our corporate jobs, why we made the decisions, how we did financial planning, how we managed risks, how we prepared our families, etc. etc. In part two, we talk about Arnab's story, and we also talk about the corporate cultures in Google and Amazon and how they differ and which culture works better for what kind of business. We also discuss what kind of culture we want to build in our company and what we would borrow from our past experiences. Enjoy. So when you were leaving, I mean, you first, you first took it like leave of absence and all. So maybe let's talk about like living nicely because I think both of us left pretty kind of nicely on good terms and all that. Also, it's one thing that Tony Fadell mentioned in his book, Build, he talks a lot about like, not burning bridges. And that's, I think, generally has been a philosophy for me as well. So how did you plan your exit? And actually, let's take a step back. Like, what actually inspired you to leave Amazon? Because you were with Amazon for 12 years, you were a principal engineer. It's a big deal. I know you will not say it yourself. It's a very big deal, very high level, like highest level, pretty much, I guess, highest level for most engineers in the company. I would say it's unreachable for most engineers at Amazon. And uh, yeah, somehow you decided to leave. So what was your motivation? What was, what was your inspiration? Why did you decide to, why did you even start thinking about this?
1: In the first five minutes, you said something, but I didn't want to interrupt you. What I was going to say is, am I you? Because <laughs> what you said is exactly what happened with me too. backtracking. So 12 years at Amazon, but not in one stint. Right. I started as a the junior most level of engineer in Amazon, SDE1. And I spent about five years, I think, in Amazon in that role. And I always wanted to go do startups and all. Uh, you've always been a entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was a entrepreneur pretty much my whole life. But we didn't know exactly what to do and all that. And we just had our daughter. We decided for family, as well as for this, that let's go try this out. So we both moved to India and our daughter, she was six months old at that time. Both of us worked in like really small startups.
0: But you weren't the founder, you were an employee of a startup.
1: I was not the founder, yeah, yeah. I wasn't thinking about founding and all that at that time. I just wanted to work in a really small, like early company. And to be fair, my wife really worked in like a four-person company, right? So that was really small. I worked in more like a 50-person company. So it was already a couple of years old and all that. But it was still a pretty big difference compared to like a big tech company. And then I'll fast forward two, three years there, kind of figured out that she had a few pretty bad experiences, right? Working there in a very small company and my daughter was not happy with like preschool and all that already and <laughs> we could see like all the stress of academics and all that that that's very normal in india in a way maybe it's good that you're so academically focused but we were not ready for that so we decided to come back and that's when i had a few offers but then i decided i really like the manager so actually craig was going to be my manager's manager at that time and i really liked it right uh, liked him. And I said, okay, this org will be a good fit. Let me go there.
0: So Craig, if you listen to this, we love you.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Craig and his manager, Ken Nexner. Ken Nexner was at some point my manager previously too. And I really liked. Him. Oh, you're kidding me. Ken Nexner hired me
0: into this role.
1: So I really liked working with their org. So I, I came back. But that burning desire to like go do something, the startup thing was always there. But now I think... I did get to work on really interesting projects. You, especially working with you for those five years was awesome. I think that experience that you and I had and our team had is very rare at a big company, which is like start something from scratch with one or two people, grow it over four or five years, almost like a startup kind of experience, but without the worries of finance and all that you know that you're budgeted for at least the next year. You don't know what will happen after the next year, but worst case, you will go on and ask to work on some other projects. Now in the second stint, I had a lot of fun working and we built really awesome things, right? And because of all that, the team grew, we got more and more exciting people joining in and the products we launched.
0: I want to interrupt you and ask you a question. So before I left three years ago, we were just starting to work on one thing that launched when? Like a few weeks ago. (laughs) A few weeks ago, yes. (laughs) That's reality for the company. (laughs) That's the reality, right?
1: Like you're launching a major new thing for AWS. It has so many things that you need to think of, right? Because there are customers of all sizes and shapes for AWS and it needs to satisfy all of them. We won't go into the nitty gritty details. Feature-wise, when I had left last year in like August, features were... Well, not pretty much they were done, but there are big things that still needed to be done. And I I don't want to get into all the details, uh, so it does take more time.
0: So in reality of a big company, you have a product that works perfectly. You need six months to tighten it up, like operationally and like process and approvals and what have you, right?
1: Yeah. Anyway, so, and I think... A year or so before I left, I got promoted also to the principal position, just like you. And <laughs> there's this uh, the saying, right? It, you will tell me who said it, but you in an organization, you grow to your level of incompetence.
0: That's a Peter's principle.
1: Peter's principle, yes.
0: I think it says everybody is promoted to their level of incompetence. And the premise there is that you can't be promoted further because you're already competent at what you do. (laughs) Basically, you stop at that level where you actually no longer are competent.
1: Right. I feel like I reached that level. I don't know if it was actually incompetence or more like unwillingness to do what that role required on a day-to-day
0: basis. Nature of your day-to-day work changes so much. Yeah,
1: but by the way, that principal role at Amazon, and uh, there's always levels and levels, right? There's like senior principal and all that. But like you said, it is a pretty prestigious role in a big tech company. And it was fun being recognized for it and all that. But it took me very far away from what I like doing, which is working on the product. Typing on keyboards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Typing on keyboard and not being on meetings too much, I think. Yeah. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) It took me far away from actually building things into the strategy. And I wasn't a manager, so there was no people management, but still in that kind of role when you're working with like 60 to 80 people, 60 to 80 engineers, I don't remember, maybe 45 to 60 engineers in our org at that time when I left, that's a lot of people and you're expected to know about everybody and all that. So all of these things was taking time away from what I like doing, which is building the thing and which is where I and you we had a lot of fun in our time at Amazon working on actually building the things so that's what kind of made me feel like okay I this is not going to work out but like you said I didn't know what I was, what I wanted to work on yet or where I wanted to go. So I took a three-month leave of absence. The org and everybody was very supportive, right? They were like, yeah, go figure it out, right? If you want to come back, yeah, this is what we'll work on together. If not, you figure out what you want to work on. And uh, that was cool, yeah. Were they expecting you to come back? It depends on different people. I think some people knew that I'm not going to come back. Some people... Hope that I would come back. Some people felt that I would come back. Yeah. And I think there was a lot, not a lot, but there was a fair bit of like showing the future part two so that I would come back between me and my manager and a few other managers. There was even a chat about like, let's figure out what your ideal role is. You come back and you do that. Stop doing what you're doing now.
0: You've earned your right to like have a custom role designed for you. Like that's just how good you you are.
1: It's not going to be like a custom role. It's still going to be the principal engineer role, but the kind of things you want to do and the kind of like teams you want to work with rather than like what you're doing right now. But I think those things, like you said, if I had done that within a few weeks, I think I would, like you said, after joining Google, within a few weeks, you realize it's just different
0: branding, the same things. (laughs) Yeah. In your case, it would also be, you know. The same company. Same people. (laughs) At least, you know, a a subset of them.
1: Yeah. Because ultimately, it's I was happy with the people, I was happy with the company. It's what I want to work on is building things and you just can't, be expected to do that amount of hands-on work and not do a lot of the other things that the role requires of you at that high level of role. Yeah,
0: actually, I think it resonates very strongly with me, because when we were doing our chatbot thing, when it was a very small team, like five engineers, I was basically doing all of the other functions (laughs) that needed to be done. Very, very scrappy, right? I remember, I did things like oh I need some analytics but I don't want to distract engineers so I'll just write my own script to get the data I actually had the time because I didn't have so many meetings I could just uh, spend 3 or 4 or 5 days like in a row deep work building something f- for fun not for fun like because I needed it it was like poor quality code but it did it got the job done and I think when uh, when I got to principal um, product manager role I didn't have time for this. I'm like, yeah, read this doc about things thing you don't care about and provide your opinion on it. And I'm like, I don't, have, I don't even want to have an opinion on this. It's like one of those <laughs> things, right? You know, if people talk about politics, I don't care about politics. I don't have an opinion. And that's okay. But like, it's not okay if, you, if you're a principal at Amazon uh, because you're, you're expected to. And I think when I left to Google, when, when I joined Google, that's what surprised me actually a lot is just how hands off you become there. Because uh, Google has different levels, but I think I joined the kind of an equivalent level at Google. And yeah, like you want to get some data, there is a business intelligence team. And just give them the requirements. Like five months later, you get your dashboards. <laughs> 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 uh, it, it depends, it depends on, on teams, of course. But yeah, like some things I can get for you very quickly. But some things like you have to build all of the pipelines, all the data all of those privacy approvals. One thing that I want to say to Google's credit, Google has a very, very stringent internal processes about privacy of data. So it's like even the simplest thing that's anonymized and uh, there is no personal identifiable information, it's still very hard. You have to jump so many hoops to get access to the data that I very much respect. From an internal perspective,
1: which as a customer we really appreciate that, and as a general human being, I think who doesn't use something from Google today?
0: Yeah. So like, I have full confidence that actually my data is protected when it's within Google. So yeah, that was very eye opening for me because I didn't realize how how strict they were, but on, when you work internally there, it's very annoying. Because you, right. to, because you have to jump all of those hoops, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, like things that I did at Amazon like six, seven years ago would be unthinkable at... They're probably unthinkable at Amazon at this point.
1: At now, yeah, yeah.
0: Especially in AWS. Especially in AWS, yeah. And also one thing that really surprised me at Google is, you know, Amazon has this writing culture. You write a document with the requirements or vision or whatever, technical vision, technical architecture. It's always very crisp writing is important, like writing gets to the perfection. And many people who don't survive within Amazon, they can't write because they can't write and culture just pushes them out. They always feel like an outlier and eventually they leave or they get fired. I mean, at more senior levels.
1: I think many of our listeners may know this already, but there is no PowerPoint presentations or any presentations at Amazon.
0: Yeah, except except it's a presentation to a customer or like a training. Yes.
1: You got to write it out either as a one page idea or a six page, like more like a narrative, but it's a
0: document. Yeah, and you spell everything out. I think that's the habit that I learned at Amazon. You know, I guess I've always been good at at writing. I just didn't have to use it as much, but when I came to Amazon, I'm like, oh my God, this is like my environment. Uh, I like kind of writing and rewriting, it was really good. When I came to Google, Google is also a document culture. It has lots and lots of documents thing is like 80% done is, is good enough in, in most cases. So basically like you write something and you feel like you figured it out while writing. You show it to a few people, people gave you thumbs up. Okay, move on. So go build it, right? So the quality of writing is much, much lower at Google. And uh, that kind of took away some of that enjoyment of the actual like individual contributor role for me. Because at Amazon, Sometimes I would clear my day and I spent the entire day just like writing a document in a coffee shop. And then I would come out and people would pat me on the back and like, I didn't do it for the pats on the back. I enjoyed the process of writing. On top of that, it was valued. It was appreciated, right? It made me better at my job when I could write well. At Google, uh, it wasn't so much. So basically like, yeah, I came into the environment where I can't do much with my hands because another thing I really like doing is, is analytics. So I couldn't do much there because of all the privacy stuff. Yeah. You know, writing... No one really cares much about like high quality writing. And it's all these freaking PowerPoints. When I listen, I know I'm missing a lot of content that's being said. So therefore, when I say something, I know that people will not hear the things that I want them to hear, at least some of those things. So it's this kind of broken communication channel.
1: There are probably lots of stuff written about this, but I'll just say that the document writing process forces the writer to actually think a lot deeper than the presentation. The presentation, there are two problems. One is you could intentionally not talk about a lot of things because it's in a concise bullet kind of format, or you could unintentionally not even think about a lot of things. Whereas when you write it, and it's not just like writing in any kind of writing, there's a specific kind of like format about how to write about an idea in Amazon. That format forces you to figure out each and every detail about the thing that you're, you're
0: writing about. And it brings everybody who's reading it to the same page like immediately. Yes, and actually in the culture that like for the first half an hour of the meeting, you actually sit down and read Like, nobody presents anything to you. You're expected to read and ask questions. So, like, if you haven't read, well, it's kind of obvious to everyone that you haven't. So, it also forces kind of good reading habits. Reading and taking notes and asking good questions. That's another good thing about the Amazon culture. Because, by the way, first year at Google, I was like, should I just go back to Amazon? It's just not working. That's how I was thinking about my time at Google. There were also different factors. But that whole, like, presentation culture, I, I never liked it. That's how I would, com- I would compare the cultures of Amazon and Google. So Amazon deliberates about a problem for a long time. Sometimes too long. Sometimes too long. Yes, that's kind of <laughs> the negative of it. But like you write a doc, you know, you go through all of those level of hierarchy to review that. So like our chatbot, we met with Andy Jassy four times to launch it. So you go all of the way up to the CEO of AWS and all of the levels in between, and you get lots of. Questions that you learn from, because like when you sit in a room with uh, with Andy or like previous couple of levels, and people ask you questions, it's like nobody else who you reviewed it with before thought about it. From that perspective, yeah. Yeah, for, because like those people are more senior; they, they know a lot more than you. They have much more experience. So you learn from that because like you know that next time you should think about that. I remember that first meeting with Andy. Andy reads the doc and he's like, "How about X?" You know, I can't disclose what was asked there. But everybody in the room, like all of the, the senior vice president, like a few VPs, all of the directors, everybody just dumbfounded because like nobody thought about that. We've been talking about that for months. Nobody thought about that. That's just what you get out of this. It's not something simple or obvious. Otherwise, somebody would have thought about it already. Yeah, it's, it's something like very far from being obvious. It's so nuanced, right? But it's very important to that product. But when the question gets asked, it's so obvious. <laughs> It's like, why didn't why did I think about it? But you didn't. And that's why you have these people
1: in higher paid jobs. Sorry, quick interruption. The last six months of my stay at Amazon, there was a similar, like something that we are trying to build. It goes against a lot of foundational principles that is held very strongly at AWS. But we were strongly of the belief that we need to do this for the user experience that we are trying to provide. And again, I won't go into any of the details. And we had a similar, like kind of write it up and go through layers and layers of reviews. And ultimately, I think one of the last few was from the Eric Brandwine, a distinguished engineer at Amazon. And pretty much it's like a VP level engineer. VP-level engineer, is basically the AWS and security, if you take those two worlds, he is the person. And he reviewed it. He worked with us quite a lot, actually, to refine this idea because he saw that, okay, this makes sense, but not in the way how you're thinking about implementing it. And I had a similar kind of experience going through that, too. And that's actually one of the things that took that last year to build out after I left.
0: Okay. Yeah, so to finish my thought, like you deliberate a lot and then docs really make it more obvious, more crisp at every iteration. And once it's approved, then uh, you almost like assemble your troops and you marched over it. You, you don't look back, unless you face some things that you haven't anticipated when you're implementing. But the probability of hitting those things is reduced by the upfront deliberation. Not fully eliminated, but it's reduced. So on the other hand, the Google's culture is more like, oh, let's do something and then figure out the details later.
1: Would you say it's more pragmatic
0: or...? I think it was more pragmatic when Google was maybe 5,000 people. It needed to win in the market. And also when it was only serving consumers. I worked only in the enterprise space. And what happens there is, you know, I won't be mentioning specific details, but like if you made a wrong decision, or like you postpone the decision on some technical aspect of the thing early on. When you come to things like compliance and other stuff, or like some big customer uh, is asking for something, it's much harder to change if you haven't built kind of the right framework for this, or if you haven't even built it right away. And so that culture creates a lot of churn. Uh, so it's almost like easier to build a new thing that replaces the old thing than to change the old thing. And maybe that's why actually Google created whatever, like 50,000 different chat applications. <laughs>
1: I think the cost of releasing something wrong grows almost exponentially with the number of customers you have because people get used to that wrong thing and they figure out their own use cases that works with that thing that doesn't work with your next version anymore.
0: Oh boy, yeah, you fix a bug and then you realize there are like tens of thousands of customers who actually use this as a feature.
1: (laughs) Right. So I think that level of deliberation is required in that kind of enterprise atmosphere, especially in AWS or Google Cloud, where there are like
0: people building their whole businesses around it and huge businesses. Again, to Google's credit, I think things are changing, and I think GCP has hired a lot of people from Amazon, from you know Oracle and Microsoft, from the companies who know how to do enterprise. But uh, there was always a stark contrast when, let's say, you. Work with somebody who only worked in consumer products before, they just don't understand it. The first time they face your problems, they're like, why can't you just run an experiment? Well, you can't. You can't run an experiment on an API <laughs> because predictability is expected. And uh, in consumer world, especially when you use products for free, it's OK to break some customers. It's OK you know, if things change a little bit and people have to get used to it. As Google expands into the enterprise use cases, I think it goes a bit against the company's DNA. And uh, maybe that's why they hired Thomas Kurian to be the CEO of Google Cloud. He was, I think, a big shot at Oracle. All his life was enterprise. All his career was enterprise. I think GCP culture is slightly different from the rest of, of Google.
1: Right. So we both, I think, really appreciate the document culture and the deep thinking process at Amazon. You talked a little bit about the other side of that and Google and how it's changing. If I were to ask you, what's the one thing you would take away from your experience at Amazon into this new company? I think you and I would probably both say like the document kind of thing, even though it's not operated at that level because it's just a very small company and we are way more pragmatic. We need to be way more pragmatic. But let me flip that question and say, what would you take from Google into
0: this uh, new company? And you can name just one thing. I'll say something very contradictive right now to what I said previously. So one thing that I think we've already taken into our new company is just structure. So when you do things, you have to have some structure around it. Like we set up all of the Kanban boards and uh, we have CI, CD, you know, we built our stuff on the service infrastructure. We've made all of the right decisions upfront That initial deliberation, I think, will pay us off in the long run. What I'll take from Google, though, is that half-done-is-good-enough approach. Scrappy. Scrappy, even though it doesn't work for the company of Google size anymore, at least uh, in the pockets that I've seen. It's perfect. I was going to say, this sounds awesome, yeah. It's perfect for startups. It was perfect when Google was just launching AdWords or Gmail or whatever, right? It it actually may still be perfect for Google's new products, consumer products. So yeah, I, I want to take that. Like a couple of days ago, I was writing something for our company, and I'm like, "This is good enough." <laughs> I just abandoned the doc. We had a quick chat. We made a decision. We just put a decision in a GitHub issue so that we actually remember how we took the decision. But the doc, screw it, throw it, throw it out. At Amazon, we would have agonized over it for another few weeks. And by the way, it was a decision. It was a decision about the company name. <laughs> yeah. Okay.
1: And I think so actually so listeners should when you get your hands on our app during Alpha be prepared for something scrappy. Because what we want to validate
0: first is the our
1: core hypothesis. We'll talk about it in the next episode. But
0: I showed it to my son and he was like, Oh my god, this is so cool. And like he was like doing things in app and he's like, Yeah, but it's buggy. Yeah. <laughs> because there was some UI <laughs> junk. Yeah. yeah.
1: So we learn and grow from there, I think, yeah. But the core thing is what we need to validate. Okay.
0: And if you want to be part of the alpha, if you listen to podcasts, and if you want to be part of the alpha, and we know you, because I think that is an important prerequisite.
1: For the first uh, first alpha, yeah.
0: Yeah, for the kind of closed alpha, the private alpha, where we only give access to people we know. Yeah, reach out to me or NAP. Right.
1: The next few ones are uh, going to be a bit silly, but I want to end on a, a bit silly note. <laughs> okay. There are a few more serious questions, but I'll try to like interleave it, okay? If the new thing that we are working on was a Google product, what would it be called? And when will it be
0: shut down? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like by using a name of a Google product, that might be disclosing what we are working on too much. <laughs> <laughs> Next question, please. <laughs> OK <laughs>
1: okay you can still answer when will it be shut down though?
0: Well, I believe it will be a very large and successful product and it might have just become part of the Google portfolio eventually. I mean I will not be surprised if down the line Google <laughs> might be an acquirer <laughs> so, uh, Let's
1: hope for something like that that'll
0: be cool. yeah So we shouldn't say bad things about Google. <laughs> <laughs> no, we never say bad things about anything. Yeah, we've just been honest and a bit nice guys.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, I forgot, I forgot the word for this, but yeah, we like to make fun of things.
1: Yeah. If you could have one person as a mentor from Google continuing on, who would that be and why? You don't have to name the person if you don't want to name them, but why?
0: There is one person at Google. I'll name him. It's okay. His name is Amit. Hello, Amit. Now I have to listen to this. <laughs> so I'll send it to you. <laughs> um, he's a director in the same organization where I was in. He's from Israel. Maybe that's what makes him a perfect mentor. He doesn't hold back really good critical questions. So he would always be like, hold on, hold on a second. And then uh, he would ask a question that just pierces through the issue and makes me think. That's what I really appreciate in people, right? I mean, Amit is very nice. But he can ask those questions where some people would hold back because they would be afraid of being perceived as maybe like not nice. And I'm saying it in a good way. You know what I mean? Like some people might have their guard on. I don't know if he does it to everybody or he does it just to me because he knows that I, I will take it really well, right? But that habit of his, I think it's also partially cultural. It's I mentioned Israel because some other Israeli I know, they are the same way. Shiny, hi. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Um, And also, he has experience in both consumer and enterprise. And I think he thinks in the right way. So yeah, I mean, it is.
1: All right. I don't know how much time you got to spend in Google in office because you joined during the pandemic, right? And then you moved to Florida.
0: Yeah, so I joined in June 2020. I got my offer in April 2020, I think. And I joined in June or something. Did you work from Google offices a little or? I never worked full time from the Google office. I visited the Google Office like for three or four days in two trips. Actually, both of them happened in the last six months.
1: Right. Okay. I was going to ask, what will you miss the most from Google Offices now that
0: we won't have anything? Here's the thing, right? So I'm sitting in this very nice, spacious, sunny, well-lit room in my house, right? So my home team was based in Seattle, both of my teams. So when I was visiting... Seattle, which I spent seven years at. I was visiting back from Florida. I think it was in November. And I remember like I would walk up at seven or so and I went to the office, it was dark. And then it was like 4.15 or so. And I peek out of the window and it's dark. And I spent most of my day in the meeting room. And the meeting room in that Fremont office was, all of the meeting rooms were like, they don't have windows, you know, they're like inside the building. So that day, The only time I saw daylight was when I maybe was like going to the restrooms between meetings and also during lunchtime. I don't miss that at all. And also like being in the office made me so tired. I don't think I ever want to work from an office again. I do like visiting the office, like meeting people and all that. It's very different vibe, but I don't want to do this more than a few times a year. But free snacks, I think uh, that was cool. (laughs) They make you fast though. (laughs) I heard amazing snacks too, but yeah. So surprisingly, actually, like half of the snacks were, you know, like nice, healthy snacks, which you would expect from a company at Google that like cares about everything. But the other half was actually junk, junk chips and all. And uh, yeah, I was surprised. I thought it would be only like apples and like kind bars and all that stuff. (laughs) But yeah, they they have junk too.
1: (laughs) Right. Okay. Last two more questions, then we'll wrap it up. What was the biggest risk you have taken previously in your life and how does it compare with this one.
0: I'll tell you this. When I wanted to go to do an MBA, I was still working with DHL in Germany. DHL was going through rounds of layoffs. And by that time, I applied to Harvard and Stanford. I got rejected from both of them. And I was scrambling to apply to a few more business schools. Wharton was one of them, which I eventually got into. But I was still in the process of applying. Like I already got rejections from my top choices. I was applying to my third choice. I didn't know if I was going to get accepted or not. But then DHL is doing these rounds of layoffs. And I'm like, I just can't do this job anymore. If I get into business school and I get laid off from DHL, I can use this money to pay off you know, some of that expense. Because it's expensive to do an MBA. It's expensive to live in the States. We have a child already. So when people announced layoffs, Because in Germany, like they have to tell, layoffs are coming. And then people are in the limbo for a few months. I raised my hand, I'm like, can I be laid off? And I actually don't remember, maybe I was just so scared, I actually don't remember that, but a friend of mine, he told me that's exactly, that's what I did. Because for some reason, I had this recollection that that I talked to my manager privately, but maybe I talked to my manager privately afterwards. But yeah, I basically, I I raised my hand, like I said, like, can I be laid off? And I think think (laughs) they, they, they deferred answering that question. I talked to my manager. I was very fortunate to have Mo, his name is Mo, as my manager. Very supportive. He did a lot for my career. But he was also vice president at, at DHL. He was very kind of high ranked. And he's like, I don't know. I'm like, listen, if I get accepted to the NBA, I'm gone. But guess what? You have to fire someone now anyway because of the layoffs. And if you fire someone now, because everybody is good on the team. It's not like you can just get rid of someone. You have to get rid of somebody good. And I'm also gone. You lose at that time, probably like 20% of your team. And you can't hire a backfield. And he's like, yeah, makes sense. <laughs> uh, <laughs> send me an email. Uh, and yeah, and then he like, talked to the CEO and all that. And uh, they're like, yeah, we'll will, we will do this. But like, stay for a few more months, finish the stuff that you work on, et cetera. I took that payout. Voluntary lead off. For a few months, without knowing what I'm going to do next. And I had these crazy ideas about doing like an e-commerce, e-commerce company selling like diapers in Germany, of Japanese diapers uh, in Germany, because I really liked those Japanese diapers. I had to order them from overseas. It was a very difficult process. So I'm like, okay, so I'm going to use those tens of thousands of dollars to do that. Eventually, so that happened like in December timeframe, I think. By April, I learned that I got into the business school. From that point on, it was all kind of laid, laid out. It was like, I guess, a similar kind of risk where I didn't know about my future.
1: I think in some ways it's also even more unknowns because you were coming to a new country, you were coming to study, you didn't have like immediately in the next two years, you're definitely not going to make any money. You're going to be fully absorbed in like basically your academics and your wife and your kid are coming with you to a completely new country and culture.
0: I didn't feel about this as a risk though, because I thought that, If you get into one of those top programs, I think Wharton was like top three. I mean, Harvard, Stanford, Wharton, they always like, at least they used to be. After two years, like you recoup. Yeah, after two, three years, like you recoup. I mean, it's it's not guaranteed, but the probability of that is very high. I think where I took a risk is like, if I didn't get into the business school, then yeah, I would have left with this kind of pile of cash. In a country where I don't speak a language, where my status is based on my job, and uh, with a young child. But the thing is, like, I, I thought I would use this money to start something up. Start a business,
1: yeah. yeah. So this time when you left Google, did you try to get laid off? Because Google did have a few rounds of layoffs.
0: I wish, I, I was hoping I would get laid off. I was hoping <laughs> there would be like a second round and all that.
1: And Google's layoff was like, it's still bad for the people who are getting laid off, but it is, I think, one of the best Severance packages that we have seen in the tech industry.
0: I saw the Meta's package before that, and I'm like, Google's probably going to do the same thing, if not better. So I'm like, please. But there was no forum to raise my hand at, you know. So when when this happened, it was a surprise to everybody. I mean, the timing was surprising, but, like, the fact wasn't surprising to me. And I'm like, okay, so I guess I'm, I still keep, keep doing this for a while. Uh, yeah, and then I was hoping for a second round. I was really hoping they would do something before the second, um, whatever, the earnings call that they had in March or April. But they haven't announced anything, then I'm like, okay, so I have to resign. Actually, speaking about leaving, I put my notice in mid-April. And I left at a month and a half later. I could have just left and dropped things on the floor because nothing prevents me from doing that. But uh, that's not the right way to end the relationship with the company that, like they didn't do anything bad for me. Like there were things that, that uh, you know, I, I didn't like particularly, right? But there were lots of things that I'm grateful for and kind of lots of people that I've made connections with. So like, I wanted to make sure that I live very nicely.
1: And I, sometimes I think we take things for granted at the end of it The jobs at Google and Amazon, those are awesome jobs
0: (laughs) compared to some other (laughs) jobs.
1: Yeah. Okay. Last question What's your goal for the first year of unemployment and how will you
0: measure that goal? I don't measure goals in my life. Okay. Yeah. So that's, um, I guess, a short answer. But uh, I do have a specific thing in mind. So, first of all, I wouldn't call it unemployment. (laughs) (laughs) I I have an executive <laughs> position in the paper company.
1: You're the CEO now.
0: Oh yes, and co-founder. So but once we launch, I think that will, you know, shit will get real because we intend to have monetization up from the first days, from the very beginning uh, because, you know, we need to make money. So my short-term goal is to make sure that our company has enough MRR to pay you and me and infrastructure cost. So at least to the extent that my runway is extended, let's say, from one year to like two or three years. And then eventually I don't have to use my savings at all. You know, and eventually I could save up as well. So, but that's like longer term. So, but yeah, I think I would call the success if in six months I don't have to spend my savings. I would have like a big success. <laughs> and the moderate success would be like maybe if I have to use half as much as I'm using right now. Actually, there was a question on LinkedIn that somebody asked under my post that I think we should honor the request. Yes. I've been thinking about that question for a few days now because it brought up some good points. When I was reading it, I'm like, that's not how I think about it anymore. But I used to think about it the same way. So yeah, let's bring it up. Let me read it out.
1: This is in LinkedIn when you and I posted that we're doing this podcast. Who is the question from? Alina. Okay. I tend to believe that building a career is a path to yourself. It is winding, full of ups and downs, but there is some inner strength that motivates you to go through it, regardless of external circumstances. Certain driving force from within, which does not allow you to turn off from the path to yourself. Do you have something similar regarding your career or professional path?
0: Yeah, so there are two things in there that I want to comment on. So first is the path. And I think it's implied in the question, and I also imagine it the same way, I used to imagine it the same way. It's like path is like a road. So it's a certain path that you follow. She's saying it like winds around, you know, the forest or whatever. But the, again, after the, after the Ayahuasca experience, <laughs> I came to more of the realization that path is not a road. And I really like how the guy called Jerry Colonna put it. He talks about a pathless path. So unlike a path that goes on the ground, let's say like a path in the forest or like a road, you are like in a lake. And the lake is so big, you can't see the shores. So basically you're like in the middle of this calm waters, or you could imagine this is an ocean too. So you're basically in the middle of those waters and whichever way you go, that's your path. Because a path on
1: the ground has been laid out by somebody before you already and you're following it.
0: Yes. Or maybe like you're in the jungle and you make a path with a machete. Well, I guess it's too much effort. (laughs) It's easier to be on a path in the lake. I like the knowledge more, you know. But yeah, to your your point, like, yeah, the paths, they imply that paths already exist. Whereas in the sea, you navigate by yourself. So that's why... I don't think about the path anymore, but I also don't think about the career path as a thing, because like when you're at a big company, you have those kind of your SD one, SD two, SD three, L five, L six, whatever, right? And and you keep growing up, and you start managing people. It's a very predefined path, pretty unified across all industries. You have a certain difference in like levels and all that, but like conceptually, it's all the same. Whereas when you are an entrepreneur especially in a small company like we are right now. We can just go whatever directions we want. Roads, we don't need roads. Remember that quote from uh, Back to the Future? Yeah, so you just make our own path. And for me, I think when I work on my own thing, it's inseparable from my life that is my life. But the word career for some reason for me is associated with like working for somebody.
1: For me, it's associated with like levels and promotions, which is all a framework laid out by somebody.
0: Somebody smart to make it work for them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, at some point we'll have to lay out this as well if we are successful.
1: But we'll be the smart ones laying out.
0: (laughs) I don't know how to make it work otherwise. We'll have to make something up. Maybe we'll be the pioneers of the, you know, we start with the podcasting company and then we, we will end up with like, Consultants of organizational <laughs> culture <laughs> without levels. Culture without levels.
1: One of my friends is a organization designer. So that's what she does the whole time, yeah.
0: That sounds fancy. Yeah. So the second part of the question was about the internal drive. And I think that can take different shapes and sizes. When you can be driven by ego, and again, that's something that kind of got shattered for me when I was in Peru. It's like... You want something because other people have it. So you are driven by jealousy, you know, or you like want to get to the next level or whatever, right?
1: Yeah, you're reducing it to the basics, but yeah, that's what it is, yeah.
0: That's what it is, right? You want kind of more of the same that somebody else has. Then you kind of keep going there. Or kind of another way that ego works. You want your mom to be proud of you or your dad, right? You close that thing. You may not even realize that. But if you expect somebody to tell you you've done a good job and they reward you for that, and you really feel happy when somebody is doing that, that's not healthy. And I hate to say this, but it's not healthy because if you work for praise, it means you have not gotten enough praise. Or you've only gotten praise when you did something good. Maybe you haven't gotten that unconditional love from your parents. And that's why you have to earn that love. And that's what you just keep doing as an adult while working a job, right?
1: But also because you can't expect unconditional love from a company. <laughs>
0: no. So th- that's why <laughs> yeah. like, you're never going to get that love. That's why it's it's never enough, right? You get the senior, you get the principal, then like, you're going to get the director. Each level, most people will start to get more busy, do less of the things that they like, get themselves like in golden handcuffs, expand their lifestyle, which they don't need to, after a certain level. And then they just get trapped in there. And I think I not immune from that myself. It's just like when you like work on your own thing, you start to th- <laughs> see things differently when you don't have income. But that's like the ego drive, right? So that's like an unhealthy drive to achievement in a society, which I think all of us have in some way or another. The other thing is like that uh, internal fire that burns in you. You know who you are and you follow that path. But I think that path is usually like, oh, look, I know I'm meant to be VP at Amazon. Like... That's that's not the thing I'm talking about.
1: Which may be true for
0: somebody, but not for you and me, yeah. Which may be true, but only in a way that maybe your passion is to, not passion, like that. your vocation, right, is to do certain things for people that you can get best at while being a VP at, at Amazon. Maybe like you're really somebody whose path in life is to help people connect, for example, right? And you create Gmail then it makes sense. You could have created Gmail by yourself, but it's just easier to do it in, inside of a big company.
1: But because you did that, you became the VP, a VP in Google, yes, makes sense.
0: Yeah, and VP is just like a, a derivative, I guess, success uh, thing. By-product. By-product, yeah. I think, for me, I, I don't even know what my vocation is in this regard. I know I like to create. Creating things that I personally enjoy, that I love, is what I want to be doing. And that was also partially the reason why it was really hard for me to work on some of the things at, at Amazon and Google. It's just like I didn't care enough.
1: I think that's the biggest similarity between you and me, is this drive to like create things. I also like to like mentor and work with people, and I know that we will miss that part of it, at least in the beginning. But I'm okay to compromise on that and just focus on the creating part because I know that I won't have to do a lot of the things that I did not like. I did not like the spending energy in things that I did not want to do.
0: Yeah, because when you do things you don't want to do, you spend actually more energy. So even if it takes the same amount of time, just like agonizing over like how you don't want to do this review, <laughs> uh, you'll consume like three times more energy for the same amount of time. Or maybe actually you'll consume three times more time because... You don't want to do it. And it's like you become kind of counterproductive in, in that regard. So, yeah, I guess one thing that came to me in Peru as well is like, lead people with your voice. And I'm like, wow, that's literally just like how I felt it. And maybe this is where the whole podcasting thing comes in, right? When I came back, I wrote on my whiteboard, amplify people's voices. And I like doing that. I like doing that in the podcast. I think with the technology that we're working on, we will give A lot more people, a lot more opportunities to use their voice, amplify their voice, yeah.
1: Well, we are almost two hours into this recording time. We'll cut it short. But still, this is going to be a long episode. I feel like this was one of our best episodes so far. But listeners who have listened to it all the way till the end, please let us know if you liked it. If you didn't like it, let us know what you didn't like about it. Yeah. Leave us a rating, review, comment, all that good stuff. Spread the word if you like this episode. If you don't want to share the whole podcast, that's okay, because we are a mixed bag of <laughs> as we grow up in podcasting. But if you like this episode, share this episode with people you know.
0: Yes, and if you know somebody who is building some cool podcast technology or have done some work, if you know somebody who worked on the iPod 20 years ago, Send them our way. We would like to interview people like this. Yeah. And
1: if you're listening to this because you're also a entrepreneur, <laughs> let us know. We'd love to have a chat. Stop
0: wanting. Start doing. <laughs> or figure out a way to stop wanting. Yeah. I'll link that podcast episode with Alex Harmozi in our show notes. It was a very good, very, 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 very good episode. He guys does like gym turnarounds. I don't even go to the gym. I have no idea what he does. But the conceptual ideas that he brings up, they are applicable anywhere. Right, cool.
1: This was awesome. Thank you, Ilya. Nice chat.